Hello, and welcome to a free preview of Greatest of All Talk. And I'm wondering, for the basketball fans at large, do you think that this does change how people view it, uh, view him? Do you think people who are maybe a little bit slower to be critical of Embiid are processing this differently? And then to Jack's point, do you think Sixers fans or Embiid defenders are going to get to the point where they ever get completely sick of it? Or do they understand this is just part of doing business with a guy who's that big and has this type of injury issues? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think the the latter explanation is probably where Sixers fans are, which is, all right, this is still the greatest franchise player we've had in most of our lifetimes, if you're a Sixers fan. I mean, obviously, some Sixers fans can go back to the Dr. J era, but... Embiid is about as great as you're ever going to get from a franchise player. And so if this is the cost of doing business, then sure, you make peace with it. You tell yourself this is going to be worth it in the long run. It's no big deal. The rest of the world is overreacting. When I say I was pissed off on Saturday night, what I mean is like I was deleting tweets where it it was like I I shouldn't be this personal about it, whether it was talking (laughs) about Embiid or Adam Silver and the culture that he has overseen in the regular season. I was like, look, let me just chill. Uh, But I I, and there was also newfound restraint. There was backlash to the backlash where people were like, you shouldn't be questioning Joel Embiid's character over not playing in this game. Which is fair and a mature way to look at it, but my response really? on Saturday wait, 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 night wait, wait. was, no, you can question his competitive character. And all the people who want to say, oh, this was the Sixers not accurately reporting his injury, and that's why the league needs to come down hard. Maybe by the letter of the law, that's where the league can find the Sixers. But I also look at this and say... I came into Saturday night with like pretty low expectations. I mean, my, my, my expectations for the regular season at this point are not very high. You know, I, I'm just searching for little glimmers here and there where there's an exciting game that we can all look forward to. You're trying That's to count your Saturday, minor daily wins, right? Exactly. The small victories along the way. You know, once we get to the playoffs, then it's the sport I know and love. And suddenly we can have games in the 90s and the low hundreds instead of every game being 140 to 135. Like that'll be great once we get there. In the meantime, I'm just looking forward to a couple showdowns here and there. Saturday night was one of those showdowns, and I just wish Embiid would have gutted it out. You know, is that too much to ask? Like, I, I really think it's reasonable to say, all right, you're mostly healthy. You're never fully healthy at any point during the regular season. Embiid's never fully healthy. Just go out there and play 30 minutes. It's not the end of the world. And, um, you know, maybe some people are going to hear that and be like, no, he's got to protect himself for the playoffs. Whatever. I think part of the issue Those arguments have sailed. We've heard those way too often for Embiid, right? And so the real crime, let's be honest, is that he's afraid of Joker. And and you can't fine him for being afraid of Joker. So you have to get him on the petty stuff, right? This is like goes back to like, how do you prosecute the mob? So, you know, you're able to find the Sixers. (laughs) You're able to find the Sixers because they didn't put the proper injury report in. It's nice that there's at least something that the NBA can act on instead of this murky gray area of like, oh, we don't know. Joel just couldn't do it. Oh, you know, he came up sore. Da, da, da. I mean, there's been no testing that we know of, right? No MRI, no X or whatever else to like show that there's some sort of an issue um, that they've let us know. My question is this. If you were Nick Nurse, 
Do you overrule the medical staff and say, come on, guys, this is not what we're about. We want to have competitive mm. character. We want Joel to get this kind of a test against Joker because he's going to have to pass similar tests in the playoffs. What's in the best interest of the Sixers is a fascinating question because you could only protect a guy so much before, you know, before you sabotage your ability to win a championship, right? Like Ben Simmons. I was calling him late scratch for like two years because he would get out there every single game. I'm going to play. Oh, no, now I can't play, right? So you don't want Embiid to be in the same conversation with the Ben Simmons in terms of like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to wait to the last moment. And if I don't feel like it or I don't feel right or for whatever reason, I'm just not locked in. I'm not going to play because you get to the playoffs. He's missed playoff games in murky situations previously as well. Joel Embiid has. So uh, that feels like a years-long pattern of behavior that's going to be something that the 76ers have to find a way to address. So if you're Nick Nurse, you're the new voice, you're empowered because you just signed a pretty big contract, you're off to this great start for the for uh, Philly in your first year, and you've overseen Embiid get a career-high 70 points and have this magical moment literally on Monday, right? Yeah. Things are going so well on Monday. Do you just say, you know what, cool, thanks, uh, Trevor Johnson, you know, assistant <laughs> medical guy, get to the back of the line, Joel's playing, what do you think? Uh, I don't think that he's in a position to make that call, and honestly, listening to Nick Nurse post game, it reminded me of the week after the Kelly Oubre situation, which... At this point, I have no idea what happened with the Oubre situation, but he's just up there fielding questions, and he's like, look, we listen to Kelly, we trust Kelly, we take him at his word, and is essentially just like washing his hands of the entire thing, of any responsibility for anything that anyone said. And I, that is the vibe he was giving off in that post-game press conference. Yeah. And Don't find me, yeah. <laughs> is what he's saying. <laughs> it is what it is, and I'm still happy to be coaching Joel Embiid. He's a phenomenal player. He is a phenomenal Phenomenal player. I don't think that he's scared of Jokic per se because he oh, plays Jokic pretty great Terrified. in Philly. Maybe he is a little bit. Uh, the altitude could play a role. I mean, they had training camp out in Colorado, so I don't really know that the altitude is like a long-term inhibitor on Joel Embiid, but maybe that played a role on Saturday. There were people who said he looked pretty winded going through warm-ups there. Um I really don't know what led to the late scratch, uh, but I can just say that it was incredibly frustrating as a basketball analyst who had been looking forward to that game all weekend. And it is another sort of indication that teams don't really care about the regular season. And then Jokic goes out there and the Nuggets are sort of sleepwalking through that whole game anyways. So it was just a big zero across the board. Um and yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they'll, they'll find the Sixers. I wish I had more of a take on what should happen. But again, it is just sort of like a cultural issue for the league writ large. I will say one take. I'm tired of people saying that Joel Embiid is having the greatest offensive season in no, NBA yeah, history because of his per break. minute scoring. <laughs> like He's having a really good season. This goes back to I, a couple weeks ago, you were like, you can't just have a seven as a take. Everybody has to have a 10 as a take. They can't just say this person's been very good. It has to be this person's the greatest we've ever seen in history. Joel Embiid, very good season. We don't need to start comping him to the best of Michael Jordan and the best of Will Chamberlain based on his per minute statistics. Uh, so that would be my one thought in addition to 
man, Saturday night was lame, and I wish the NBA wasn't like this, but it is, and it has been for the last like five to ten years, and hopefully something changes along the way. Look, Denver is 18 and four at home this year, 14 and 11 on the road. Okay. So he's afraid of Joker because it's a lot easier to be comfortable with your fans and your building, your momentum. Oh, everything's, you know, set up perfectly. You know, I'm going to be able to look my best because everything's designed around me than it is to go to Denver, which is not the hardest place to play in terms of crowds. But I love that they got on him during this game. I hope he heard those words. I hope he took those to heart uh, because it does feel like this is a matter of pride and a matter of professionalism uh, mm-hmm. from Embiid as well. Uh, if this was the only time he had done it, I would have given him a pass. He had a completely made-up injury last year. We, we went through the same thing last year, and I'm sure it was made up the year before as well. It's been time after time after time. And Joker's going to work him in Denver, period, because Joker works everybody in Denver, period. And he has for four straight years. And the only reason why we haven't seen him work Embiid is because he doesn't have the guts to show up. Okay, yeah. bottom line. So he he has to hold that. Again, I, it doesn't really change how I feel about Embiid because I already felt that way. I stand by what I said after the 70-point game. This has been a special season for him, a special season for the 76ers. As we agreed at the time, they still have so much more to prove. And this is exactly why. And my message to Jack, first of all, that wasn't my burner account. I want to clear that up. Second <laughs> of all, bead, though, pretty nice. I think we can keep that alive. Second of all, Jack's going to be on the right side of history in all of these debates with the people he's upset about. You know, the Embiid stands in the the goat discord and everything else. Jack, you've been right every day for the last four years in these conversations by standing up for Joker over Embiid, and nothing that's happened this year including all the incredible scoring streaks in the 70-point game and all of that, nothing has changed the fundamentals of that dynamic. And the biggest question is, can Philly actually reach a conference finals? That will give them a right to actually reach the finals. And then will he show up for game one? Or will he warm up and decide not to play? Well, and that is actually one of the reasons I was looking forward to Saturday. One of the reasons I was so disappointed is whenever Embiid and Jokic do play one another, it's great. And they deliver on the hype. And you're like, man, it's fun watching these guys go back and forth. And those two teams, like Styles make fights. The Sixers and Nuggets play really entertaining games against one another. And so it would have been fun, alas. And and look, the reason I'm cool with crushing Embiid for the first 15 minutes of today's podcast is because I do think that is part of the issue, is that guys sit And then there's a lot of national media people and then fan bases who say, well, actually, it's smart to sit because in May and June, you're going to want guys at 100% and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, look, Dude, June's not a consideration for the Sixers. They play, they play <laughs> the finals in June. too short. You know what I mean? Like, just fucking play Jokic. Everybody in Philly was excited for that game also. And then everyone, after the fact, has to be like, oh, no, it's just a regular season. Just another game. It doesn't really matter. Like, no, it's okay to crush this dude for sitting. And um, maybe he's going to continue to sit the rest of the road trip so that Saturday night doesn't look quite as bad. I do believe that, you know, what the injury in the Pacers game on Thursday night 
was real. He probably should have been listed as probable or questionable. It's a he little bit bizarre that they were messaging to all the reporters in advance of that game. Like, Embiid's definitely going to play. He'll be there Saturday night. So, I, I mean, definitely institutionally, I have no idea what the Sixers were thinking on the way into that one because anybody who watched the fall on Thursday could see that, all right, it's not guaranteed that he's going to play Saturday based on the last 10 years we've seen from Joel Embiid. But I wish he would have given it a go. And uh, I, hey. I'm, I guess Look, I'm not shocked that he didn't. No, I mean, you step out on that ball arena court, you start to see the signs that say elevation 5280 around mm. you, you know, oxygen warning. You start hearing the crowd. The air you know, gets chanting thin at the during top. warm-ups. You see, you know, Jamal Murray, you know, throwing in, splashing in threes from 30 foot during warm-ups. You see the big joker going through his textbook warm-up routine. Um, yeah. Day off sounds pretty good. PTO, I mean, whatever it might be. Let's. Uh, <laughs> I understand that impulse. I get it. But I'm sorry, man. Like, eh, you can't have it both ways. You can't want to be the MVP. You can't want to be seen as a winner. You can't want to be viewed as a guy who just cares about nothing else but trying to chase a championship and duck out on a matchup like that. You can't. And it's the worm has turned to me. I, I feel like people are onto him. I do think casuals have started to view him a little bit differently, especially compared to two or three years ago, where I felt like it was nothing but unabashed praise for him, even though he hadn't earned it. And, um, you know, I just I'm not sure he's going to live this one down. Right. Because there's not another game in Philly where he can kind of change the subject. It's going to come all down to his postseason performance. And, uh, you know, that's another track record issue we've seen. Like, well, maybe he shows up, doesn't play well. He's banged up. He uses that as a mental crutch and, and isn't able to exert himself. And that's why I think missing out on a game, not even just giving it a go, trying. You know, if you have to come out halfway through the first quarter because you're not right, okay. You know, at least people will say, hey, he tried. I think it just raised the stakes and sharpens the spotlight on his performance this year. It just increases the pressure because people are going to say, you know, the big knocks on him now are you're a ducker and you flame out in the playoffs. Those are the two mm-hmm. things that people say, right? Well, now everyone's going to be expecting that even more, uh, you know, coming into the first round or the second round. And he has to have a signature postseason run. Otherwise, that's going to stick to him for a really long time. Yeah, well, I think the postseason questions are central to the story, whereas this is more of a bizarre subplot with Embiid. But um, either way, he definitely has a lot to prove. And going back to last year... But isn't it the same issue? How you respond to pressure, how you conduct yourself in big moments, how when everybody's watching and you're not just beating up on bad teams and scoring 45 against the Charlotte Hornets and 50 against Daniel Gafford and your Washington Wizards Mm. and 70 against Victor Wembanyama and the cast of G-Leaguers, as Jack so expertly put it, um, you know, all that's fluff, okay? What about the big moments? And his big moments have not gone well for like seven or eight years straight, and this is just another one right on top of it. It's a long list. I'm not sure it is the same precise issue, but I'm fine with conflating the issues because, again, I think we're in a healthier place as a basketball society if some of these superstars start feeling the heat for ducking big matchups like this on national television. So, yeah. Welcome to the club. I'm so glad to have you. This is great. (laughs) Absolutely. And, And last year... I think Embiid was the rightful MVP. The best case against voting for him for MVP is on principle because of the way he ducked Jokic in Denver. He 
could not win MVP. Uh, uh, that argument makes sense to me because it was so egregious. And this may not have been quite as egregious because, again, he did seem like he was hurt. And who knows exactly what the reasoning was, what the player performance staff was saying in Denver. Uh, but still, give it a go. The entire country is excited to watch you play. Um, and I just thought it was lame all around. Uh, continuing on, though, and speaking of the MVP, Steve says, Ben Golliver on Friday afternoon, Luka Doncic is not an MVP candidate. Luka Doncic on Friday night, 73-10-7. Luka won, Ben zero. Yours in basketball, Steve. Ben, do you have any thoughts for Steve after Luka clearly listened to the GOAT before we had even published it? Somehow he got a copy before Mavs Hawks on Friday night, put up 73-10-7. What were your thoughts on that performance? I mean, completely unmoved. What a goofy email from Steve. Uh, no disrespect. We appreciate the um, the interaction here, but come on, bro. Come mm. on, bro. You can't think what we saw against the Atlanta Hawks was evidence that he's the MVP. It's evidence that he can put up massive numbers, that he has a ball in his hands constantly, that he's a one-man offense, that he has MVP talent. I said that as well. I said he's not in the MVP conversation. And he's not. His team is not good enough. The way that they've constructed this around Luka is not going to allow them to win enough games to get in that conversation. And you have players who also put up major stats who are winning so much more and have healthier team dynamics than the Dallas Mavericks um, in Nikola Jokic and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Those guys are a clear, clear, clear cut above Luka Doncic even after his incredible 73, 10, and 7. I got another message, Andrew, that said, hey, you have to have an emergency podcast. Lucas scored 73. Let's break this down. Um, you know, I had people trying to make jokes. Is, is it 7-11 or is it 73-11? Like, Ooh. what is Luca? You know, those <laughs> kinds of conversations. And the bottom line is we don't have to have an emergency podcast for that. We don't even have to lead this show with that. You know, last week I felt guilty when Embiid got 70 and I was like 70 is 70. But now that we've seen two of those in a four-day stretch, now that we've seen four 70 performances in the last 13 months and we've seen five 70-point perform- performances since 2017 when in the previous 20 years before that we had only seen one, we can now say 70 is not 70, okay? Mm. Uh, 70 is the new 60. I don't know. Maybe 70 is the new 50. I don't know. But um, – I am never going to be wowed in this modern inflated scoring era just by a player's, uh, you know, one game box score tally against the bottom five defense. That's never going to do it for me. And Dallas Mavericks fans like Steve or Luka fans like Steve should want a heck of a lot more from their guy. Guess what? The very next night they turn around and lost because Luka's not going to be able to score 73 points and dish seven assists every single night, which is what it took for Dallas to get its only win in their last five games. It's not a sustainable strategy. It's not a smart strategy. He is not an MVP candidate. This is not me doubling down on a bad take. This is me telling you the truth, Steve. It's doubling down on an obvious take. Do you think we should brand Steve fraud Steve moving forward? He's emailed about Luca several times in the last couple of months. No, I mean, he signed his uh, email, yours is a basketball. I just want him, first of all, which I appreciate because that's that famous Chris <laughs> Paul uh, invitation letter, which I wanted to adopt as my own signature. But 
we've reached a moment here where like the soul of the game is at stake. And that might sound a little bit melodramatic to some people, but it's not. The scoring mm. has gotten absolutely insane. I've got some numbers that we could possibly dig into to help explain why this is happening. But if you think that the fact that a guy in today's NBA could put up 73, 10, and 7, and therefore he's now an MVP, he is what we should hold up as the paragon of value um, in this NBA. Unfortunately, you've lost the plot, just like I think the, the NBA has lost its way a little bit um, during these scoring explosions. So if you want to dig into that broader conversation, I would love to, but this is not personal towards Steve. You know, He can celebrate his guy's big moment, but let's not extrapolate from... Luca's best night and act like that's a, a representation of his entire campaign and you know accurately reflects where he stands next to, to the most deserving candidates in this league. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw in the wake of the Luca game because it, it coincided with Booker scoring like 60, 65 against the Pacers and losing, which was pretty funny. Um, there was a lot of debate back and forth on NBA Twitter and somebody was saying we should just appreciate these historic nights. They're part of the sports lore talking about the 70 points, the 70 point games we've seen in the last year or so. Mitchell, Lillard. I went back and looked at the box score that Lillard put up against the Rockets and he's taken like 22 threes against Ty Ty Washington and that husk of a Rockets team and I'm sorry that night was not part of the sports lore for me I don't remember any of these 70 point games I mean I do remember that Mitchell scoring 70 the Cavs needed every bit of that 70 to get that win uh, a year ago but in general, I'm unmoved by basically all of this. So I guess I would love to hear more stats about the current era, but I'm also interested in how you might fix it, what steps you might take to address what we're seeing, and why it's unfulfilling to you as somebody who is you know, married to the game. You're in it for life here. So what do you think the league should do as we move forward with this modern era where every game sort of feels like an all-star game? I mean, like particularly Hawks-Mavs. I was watching, look, credit to Luka. It's unbelievable to have 65 points through three quarters. But at the same time, you watch some of the defense and it just isn't particularly rewarding as a basketball fan, uh, particularly given how frequently it seems to be happening lately where guys just go off and and everybody just sort of stands there and watches. Um, I mean, it's the Kobe situation against the Raptors, you know, 15 years ago was an isolated incident. And Kobe was in the midst of like a truly remarkable month or two of individual scoring feats. But now that happens so often that it's just like, all right, whatever. Let's let, I, I had so much more fun watching Nuggets Celtics a, a week or two back where it's a close game down to the stretch and both teams are playing in the 90s. Like, I wish we could get more of that during the regular season. No, I'm with you. So the the, the statement that annoyed you um, were the fans saying that this is part of the historic lore of the game, these big scoring performances. There's a cousin to that statement, which really annoys me, which is the NBA has never had more offensive talent and skill before. So we have to just appreciate that these kinds of things are happening because of the, the depth of talent. And I think in both cases, like 
those are, you know, somewhat true statements. I think the second one's a little bit more true than the first one. I'm with you. Like it's, it's not historic. It's not worth an emergency podcast if it happens twice in one week, right? So we have to change our definition of history a little bit. Um, but the one about just the offensive talent, I think that really is a disingenuous take. And I'm not sure if people are making that in good faith or if they're just kind of clueless. In short, there's been three major developments over the last 10 years in the NBA. One, uh, many more three-pointers have been attempted. And and I use the 10-year framework because that's when Steph Curry and the Warriors won their first championship. And it really ushered in a totally different style of play, the way the game has been operating over the last decade, right? So one, there's been way more three-pointers. Two, the pace has picked up. Three, there's been a consolidation of the ball in superstar level players' hands because, you know, whether it's analytics or just, you know, deeper study of what wins and what works, um, teams have concluded that the very best players are capable of handling more possessions than they were in past eras, right? So all three of those things contribute to these massive scoring nights, right? Like Luca has the ball constantly. He's capable of taking lots of three-pointers or he's capable of driving into an open paint because his teammates are such good three-point shooters that he's either getting layups or fouled consistently. And that was the case with Embiid. Lots and lots of free throws, lots of stuff around the basket because the court is pretty well spaced around him. Of course, the possessions are way up from 10 years ago. So that's the general framework that we're working with. These point, uh, you know, explosions in some way are almost engineered by the way the NBA has kind of played out here over the last 10 years. All of these factors have gone towards increasing the potential for individuals to have huge scoring nights, but also just scoring increasing in general. So you go back just 10 years, the average score for a team in a game was 101. It's now up to 115. That's the Mm -hmm. highest number we've had since 1970. You go for three-pointers, average threes taken in a game from 22 10 years ago. Now it's 35. It's a massive increase, right? Pace is up from 94 to 99 over the last 10 years, right? You look at um, the leading score in the NBA 10 years ago, average 32 a game. That was Kevin Durant. That was a really, really incredible historic scoring season at the time. Now Embiid's averaging 36. So that's clear inflation. And the most interesting one to me is that 10 years ago, there was only five players in the league who averaged 25 points or more. This year, there's 18. There's practically one per team that's doing that, right? It's nuts, right? And I think there's almost 50 players in the NBA this season who are averaging 20 points per game. And it used to be if you average 20, you're going to be an all-star. Now, you know, they got to have five all-star teams to accommodate everybody who's averaging 20 points per game. So this is what I mean about the soul of the game. If you go back to the early 2000s when it was just such a defense and grinding era and the scores were so low, the games were borderline unwatchable, the finals games were in the 80s and, and people really aren't tuning in. The NBA said, hey, we've got a problem here. Like, you know, we've got to make this a better viewing product for our fans. So we're going to change some of the rules. We're going to engineer the opportunity uh, for more scoring chances. We're going to, you know, take away hand checks, more freedom of movement, those kinds of things, change illegal defense rules and all of that. And I think, you know, using the high point totals as markers, I think is actually helpful. When Kobe does it in an era that's not kind of like this juice ball era, it's incredible. That's a performance that we still remember to this day of like, how the heck did he do it? Because it was so out of step mm-hmm. with everybody else in the league, right? But Joel Embiid 70 and Lucas 73 are not out of step with the other things that are going on in the league because this week we had a multiple 60-point games 
you know, just not anybody could do it, but a lot of stars are capable of reaching those heights, many more than were in past eras. And so when Booker had his 70, that was a big deal, first of all, because they lost, but second of all, because it was like, oh my God, we haven't seen anything like this in more than a decade. Let's talk about what it means. But, you know, it goes back to the idea of like everybody likes cake, but nobody eats it every single day because you're going to get sick of it. Right. Like, yep. that's what the NBA is, work, you know, is kind of trending towards. It's like if you're having 70s and 60s all the time, it's not going to have the same impact. It's not going to drive the discourse. It's not going to lead to an appreciation for the players. It's just going to become the new normal. And if uh, TV ratings were accelerating with scoring, if fans were saying, look, we love the home run chase. We're going to tune in to watch Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And this was like the golden era of interest in the NBA. It would be much harder for me to argue that they have a problem because that's what fans are wanting, right? But that hasn't been the case. What's interesting, the most popular era of the NBA that I cover, that I remember, was the 2016 Warriors, 2015 Warriors era where they were brand new. Nobody had kind of seen what they were doing. It was revolutionary. It was fun to see. Steph was this magnetic superstar guy. They had a great contrast of styles and competition from LeBron and the Cavaliers. And it was like, whoa, we're kind of feeling eras clash. And, you know, it's just very, very rich in interest. But that has not carried over. Like the Steph imitators, the league kind of being remade in that three-point mold, or if you want to say in like Harden's mold in terms of being like a high-usage, uh, you know, ball-dominant guy, has not led to continued growth. The fans don't seem to be as interested. There was lots of complaining and debating going on after Embiid's game and after uh, Luca's game in ways that really haven't happened in the past. And if you're losing even the diehards, right, and you're not gaining casuals because the TV ratings suggest that they're not gaining casuals, that feels like a crisis. Maybe it's not as bad as it was early in the 2000s, but I think it's to me, it's something that requires league intervention. And there are things they can do. They can change what's a foul around the basket to stiffen things up so you don't just get to go to the free throw line every single time. They could change illegal defense rules to make it a little bit more easy uh, for, for defenders to, uh, you know, scheme against the best players. They could, uh, you know, potentially change something like where is the block charge circle, right? And do things like that to make it a little bit trickier to score around the basket. They could take the three-point line and move it back. That feels like a radical change, but they've changed the distance of the three-point line in past eras, bringing it in, moving it back out. And I think we're at the point now where with three so prevalent it, and, you know, kind of layups for so many of these shooters, it's definitely something worth considering. They could look at goaltending rules in terms of, you know, how are you able to defend around the basket? Uh, there's a lot of different things that they could do to firm things up for the defense, but they've gone the other way. They fueled it with recent rule changes. Remember, they changed the shot clock reset from 24 seconds to 14 seconds if you get an offensive rebound. That just generates more possessions. That increases the pace of play. That makes sure teams are getting up and down the court faster. They also you know, came out with those freedom of movement rules, which is basically here's what defenders can't do uh, when you're trying to get free off the ball. And if they hold you and grab you and those kinds of things, it's going to be a foul. Well, why are we doing that when offense is just destroying defense? Why are we making it easier for offense? I don't get it. So um, that's how I see the, the landscape. I do think that this cannot just continue unabated because at some point, you know, if 70 is the new 60, then at some point, 80 is going to be the new 70. And then mm -hmm. 90 is going to be the new 80. And if you just kind of continue on this trend, say for another five, six, seven, eight years, you know, Wilt's record is probably going to go down. And then at that point, are you a sport or are you a gimmick? What's happening here?
Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's fair to ask the question. And your cake analogy, the the precise analogy I would make is that some of these big scoring nights are the icing on the cake, but nobody wants to eat a cake that's like 90% icing. And that is what the last couple years have felt like, where every night there's these massive performances. And it's like, all right, so none of those performances actually matter if everyone's doing it all the time. And it's all kind of gross and makes you feel a little sick afterwards. That's Correct. where we are right now. And, uh, you know. Well, and I, here's the thing. And, and for guys like Steve, Steve's going to remember Luca and, and love it. The Sixers fans who went to go see Embiid score 70. You know, they're going to love it for their guy. But, you know, for the people who are watching the league as a whole and for the, the league offense itself, they've got to realize that, like, the cost of those individual memories for the fan bases is like the entire endeavor's credibility, right? It's like, yeah. Yeah. If I got to see a 70 point game, I would love it. I would never really forget where I was and, like, those kinds of things. I don't think I've ever seen a 70. I've seen some in the 60s, I believe. But, um, if they get more common and if everyone has it, um, it will. It just it devalues. There's there's no way around it. Right. And an olive branch to fraud Steve there. Uh, if John Wall at the peak of his powers had ever scored 73 points, it would have been a, a lifetime highlight for me. And I would have really delighted in the entire experience. And look, I'm sure Luca could score 70 again this season because he's just that good. So it's not about denigrating any of the guys who are actually doing this. But again, I think systemically there are ways. I mean, look, if you go back to 2006 and 2007 and look at what the game had turned into during that era, you can say pretty conclusively in retrospect, that wasn't healthy for the sport. I think everybody can agree that that wasn't the optimal version of the NBA. So if you can acknowledge that, all right, the pendulum had swung too far and defenses Correct. could do too much at that point, then obviously from a logical standpoint, the pendulum could swing too far in the other direction and offenses could have far too much freedom and it could just be basically impossible to play defense. And that's where we are now. And the two changes that I would suggest are number one, you have to let defenses hand check a little bit more and keep guys out of the lane, keep guys from getting into the lane and collapsing defenses to where they can kick to wide open shooters because it's just so easy to be a perimeter scorer right now and basically do whatever you want. And if the defense does anything to impede you, you're at the line 10 or 15 times a game. Like that, I mean, Shea Gilders Alexander, as much as we... Uh, criticized um, Anthony Edwards for in the wake of that Wolves Thunder loss calling out Shea Gillis Alexander. I will acknowledge that you can't breathe on Shea without sending him to the line. He's very clever at getting himself to the line, so I don't think it's quite as shameless as some of the more egregious Harden seasons we saw, but still, it makes him next to impossible to defend. And, and I think when you look at the way the league has changed over the last 10 years, I do look at the Rockets as the team that really sort of ushered in the revolution more than the Warriors. The Warriors were compelling because they were still running great offense. There was a lot of motion involved, and it was genuinely thrilling to watch. What we saw with the Rockets was a team that hacked the geometry of basketball, as people like to say, 
and found a formula that allowed them to compete with the best teams in the league on any given night, despite not really having that top-end talent outside of James Harden. And then every team in the league started playing that way. And so where we are now, I would, number one, again, we have to officiate the games differently. And this is another case where the league has just gone the opposite direction and made it so much harder on defenses. And then number two, I would consider taking away the corner three because that's another case where defenses have so much ground to cover at this point that there's only so much you can do when you're trying to stop a modern offense that has a superstar that that can get into the lane at will. And we've seen it night after night where basically everybody's just sort of waving the white flag and saying, all right, well, we're going to play in the 120s and 130s tonight because there's no other answer. And the reason the games aren't played that way in the playoffs is because officials do let the defenses bump guys a little bit more, make it harder to get into the lane, and and the games become more entertaining when they're played on that basis. Um, So it's a, a lot of thoughts there, but I think the key thought that you hit on earlier is that the first step is the league recognizing that this is a problem and that there's something that needs to be done to improve the product. And I'm not sure we're there yet. I I think that Luca scoring 70 makes for a great 48 hour social media story. And they view that as a win instead of as a red flag and warning sign that in the last two weeks we've had like, I four guys score 60 or more in a certain game. And, and particularly over the last two years, like you look at the list, it's ridiculous how frequently this stuff is happening. And so I, I would love it if the league took action on any of this stuff. I don't care whether it works or not, but just recognize that this is a problem. And now I'm remembering why I was so frustrated Saturday is because I sat through a bunch of arguments Friday night with people saying, well, if you have a problem with what Luka Doncic did or what Devin Booker did, then you just don't really appreciate basketball and you need to appreciate basketball, appreciate greatness. It's like, come on, we can all want this product to be a little bit better during the regular season. And that starts at the top. And, you know, Adam Silver, his contract was said to be very close to renewal uh, right after Joel Embiid ducked Jokic on Saturday night. So great timing with that report from Adrian Wojnarowski. But that's where it starts. The league has to recognize that there's a problem here. And that's why that argument I was saying earlier about like, oh, you just have to appreciate the amazing amount of offensive talent in the NBA is so disingenuous, kind of similar to the point you were making there at the end. If you go look at the playoffs, playoff scoring is also up relative to 10 years ago, but it's significantly lower than regular season scoring. So it's become almost two different sports in terms of how it's played. There are some definitely some some noticeable differences in the officiating as well. And surprise, surprise, nobody's going for 70 in the playoffs. Not even close, right? Like, I mean, Mike still holds the all-time playoff scoring record. He set that thing practically when I was born, you know, mm-hmm. right around that same era. So it's been a very, very long time. So that is kind of the tell to me. Well, if it was just all about amazing scoring talent and not a matter of how the game is played or the infrastructure governing the game, we would see the exact same kinds of performances in the playoffs, but we don't. All right, and that is the end of the free preview. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and get two episodes every week from me, Andrew Sharp, and Ben Goliver, you can go to greatestofalltalk.com and subscribe to the show.